Uh, let's get right into it. First Corinthians six. Let's go. Uh, yeah. All right. You're fired up. Um, so you might be thinking, all right, we just did first Corinthians one, six doesn't come after one. Yeah. We're skipping around. All right. That's my explanation. We're bouncing around in Corinthians. We're hitting the high points. We're in first Corinthians chapter six. Let's get right into it. So here's what this chapter is about. It's about what true freedom is. And I want to show you where I'm getting that. There's this, this little um, expression in verse 12. I'd love it if you'd look there with me in your Bible. Otherwise, we should have it on the screens. Uh, this little expression, I was confused about this for a while. I, I used to think that, that Paul was saying this, but he's actually quoting the Corinthians. This was this little expression that they were throwing around in Corinth. Here's the expression, all things are lawful for me. And then Paul responds to that by saying, yeah, but, but not all things are beneficial. But I, I want to unpack that idea of all things are lawful for me because I think that gives us a window into the type of stuff that they believed and what they thought the good life was. And I think we're gonna see ourselves in it. And I think we're gonna see our culture in it. So, so think about that, that sentence, all things are, are lawful for me. Another way that you could say that is, is pretty much anything that I want to do, I can do. Or, or another way to put that would be, hey, don't get in the way of my rights. I, I'm the one that knows what's best for the way to live. And so, so I don't want other people making those decisions for me. I want to be free to make those decisions myself. So it's this claim at freedom, right? And Americans love their freedom, right? You see this 4th of July, the bro tanks come out. The, the American flag bro takes on all the bros. The hicks are out. And they're, you know, they're listening to their country music about dogs, beer, and America. And, and yelling, yeah, America. And, uh, you know, so that happens on the fourth. There's a little bit more refined way that we do this culturally. There's the whole tolerance thing. Uh, which here's the, the basic summary of what tolerance is that's so popular right now culturally. It, it's essentially saying that, that hey... My truth is my truth, and so nobody can tell me how to live, even if it's wrong. Like, I'm free to believe whatever I want to believe and live however I want to uh, live, regardless of its moral consequences. Or another way to put it is when you're in the tolerance movement, you're being intolerant of anyone who would make claims on truth, right? So, but that's that whole don't touch my freedom thing. Some of you, you don't want your freedom touched. Let's be honest. All right. How many of you have overbearing parents? Actually, don't raise your hand. I, I did not phrase that well. Think in your mind if you have an overbearing parents. A lot of you have like helicopter moms. Uh, you know what I'm talking Do you guys understand? Is that a common phrase? Do you know what that? Okay. All right. All right. All right. It's checking in. Uh, and I know that because they talk to me. I talk to way too many moms in this job. They call me and they ask me about how you're doing, or they call me and say, hey, go find this random person on campus and get them to come to church. I'm like, there's a reason I'm not gonna be, okay. <laughs> when your mom calls you up and tells you how to live, how do you feel? Like when you hear those words, hey, you should, are you just like, oh, why thank you for the, the wonderful advice? No, you hate that, why? Because you wanna be free. You, you want to decide what's good and what's true for your life. You don't want anyone else kind of coming into that freedom. But what if I told you that a lot of you in the room, maybe most of you, aren't actually free? And not only are you not free, but you're, you're a slave in the way that you live. 
And it isn't because somebody else is, is doing something to push you down and you just gotta fight your way out of it. It's actually because of the way that you are choosing to live. And the reason why you're choosing to live that way is because you've mistaken slavery for freedom and freedom for slavery. That's what I think 1 Corinthians 6 is gonna show us. Here's the idea is that freedom, unlike what our culture would tell you, unlike what your instincts would tell you, isn't living however you want if what you want is killing you. And a lot of the stuff you want will kill your soul. So freedom isn't living however you want. Freedom is learning to live for what's good. So some of you ran the Twin Cities Marathon. Some of you crazies out there. You ran it. Well done. I, mad respect, all right? You, you killed it. Way to go. Uh, I'm confused by that desire, but I think it's cool that you did it. Okay, so here's the deal. When you go downtown, does it start downtown Minneapolis? Is that where it starts? What, U.S. Bank? Okay, so you go down to U.S. Bank, and what, what's there? There's, there's a pathway for you to run. There's a very specific route through which you run in order to complete the marathon, and along that route, there are spectators, and my guess is there's, there's water stations, there's EMTs along the way in case something goes wrong to protect you, right? So here's, here's what I'm saying. The, the pathway or, or the, the designated route to run the marathon is the thing that sets you free to actually complete a marathon. If you just went downtown and started running around random roads, and when I ran a marathon the people who actually ran a marathon would be very angry with you because you didn't run a marathon, because you didn't follow the path. Here's my point, is the path is the thing that actually sets you free to do the thing that you wanna do. The, the quote-unquote restrictions, the, hey, you've gotta run this way, is the thing that enables freedom. That's what's true when we follow God is that Jesus gives us quote-unquote restrictions, things that we tend to see as restrictions, which are actually just the pathway to help you accomplish the thing that you want, or at least the thing that you should want in life. It's the pathway to flourishing as a human being. That's why Jesus gives us some of the, the restrictions that he gives us in life. And so I wanna talk about two pathways that I, I think 1 Corinthians chapter six breaks down into. The first pathway is the pathway to freedom in relationships. And then the second pathway is the pathway to freedom in sexuality. All right, so pathway to freedom in relationships. So here, here's what's going on in the church of, of Corinth. We need some background to understand this, is, is they are fighting with each other all the time. We don't know exactly what they're fighting about, but we know that it's getting pretty heated, so much so to the point that they're actually taking each other to court. So it's this little church in Corinth that's trying to demonstrate what Jesus is like to the world. And instead of demonstrating unity, they're actually getting in fights and in public, they're kind of hashing out those fights and it's not a good witness for Jesus. And so Paul is gonna give them an, a description of what the good life would be in a circumstance like this. Verse seven, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? So, so here's what he's saying. He's saying, hey, you living in conflict and tension and hate isn't actually the good life. Even if you get what you want out of it, you've already lost because you're living contrary to the way that you were designed to live. You're living contrary to what the good life would be and the good way to live. 
So, so here's, here's the principle that we can take from that in relationships. That living a life of love, even when it costs you something, is always better than living a life of selfishness and conflict. Living a life of love, even when it costs you something, is a better life than living a selfish life. Now, let me explain to you why that's freeing. Because if you live like that, you don't have to be a hypocrite. Okay, this is one of the things that is kind of lobbed at Christians. A lot of you have heard this, right? Like Christians are just hypocrites. They don't actually back up what they're preaching. And I mean, my guess is that, yeah, none of you in the room are just like, oh yeah, I wanna be that. I just, hypocrite right here, I love it. You know, I'm in, no, like nobody wants to be that. Some of you have been damaged by this. Some of you have been hurt by the church and maybe you're just now starting to come back. You've got baggage with God because you saw hypocrisy in the church, which is essentially saying one thing and living a different way. But isn't it so easy to live like that? Even though we all hate hypocrisy, isn't it so easy to become one? Right, when Jesus talks about loving everyone, and, and he, he talks about loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you, we're all like, woohoo, Jesus! Like, yeah, that's awesome. We love that. That's super like culturally trendy to say that. And we're like, yeah, see, Jesus. But then you immediately turn around and you gossip about the people in this room. And, and you, you tear down their reputation behind their back where someone does something to you and you hold on to bitterness, maybe for years, and that bitterness eats you up inside. And it's not only eating you up, but it's eating up your image and your perception of that person and everyone else's image and perception of that person as you gossip about them. You talk about love externally. You hear Jesus talk about love and you're like, yeah, Jesus, he was super loving. We like that. But then you don't actually live in love. Or how about this one? You get mad about stuff that's happen happening culturally. And you might have different perspectives on what you're mad about, but, but some celebrity or some political leader says something that ticks you off and you're outraged and you're mad about it and you call out for justice. And look, I'm not saying that's a wrong or a bad thing, but here's what you do is you go off and you rant on social media or, or you get mad and you talk to your friends about it, but do you ever do anything? In in I feel this in my life. Like I, there's stuff that I'm, that I'm mad about and I want to call it out, but it's hard for me to actually back that up with doing something about it, with actually changing this world. And, and I want to be different in that. I don't want to just give lip service to stuff. I want to do something about it. And so we're trying to find service opportunities for Salt Company that as we get this nailed down, we'll let you guys know about it. But we've got a connection with, a, with a, I think it's an elementary school that I'm hoping will work out where there's some special needs kids that, that need rides places. We wanna help with that. We've got, we're working on a connection with a, a homeless shelter with a girl that works there that goes to our church and we wanna serve some meals. We wanna do what we can to help. Let's do something. Freedom in relationships is actually being a person of love instead of just talking like you're a person of love. Backing up what you say with your life is a better life to live. So that's how you get freedom in relationships. All right, freedom and sexuality, sexual freedom. All right, here's the deal. We're talking about sex for like the rest of this sermon. All right, I'm just giving you a heads up on the front end. It's not because I just woke up and went, man, I really want to give a sermon on sex. It's what 1 Corinthians 6 is about, all right? So we're going there, just deal with it. You've heard worse stuff in health, you're fine. Um, okay, 
So, so let's talk about sex. Baby, let's talk about, okay. I, yeah. it's just, I said, there's stuff that I think about in prep that I'm like, don't say that. And then I say it, it just happens. I'm working on self-control. Okay. Uh, all right. There's this weird thing that happens when I talk to college students about sex. And, and here's what happens is, is somebody inevitably says, hey, that whole thing that the Bible says about sex and waiting till marriage, which I, I okay, let's back up. That is what the Bible says, by the way. It's, it's actually remarkably clear. It's all over the Bible that the, the appropriate, con- that sex is a great thing. It's a good thing, but the appropriate context for it is within marriage. And when it's taken outside of that context text, it's actually not a beneficial thing. Okay, that, that's the teaching of the Bible. And so here's what I hear from people is, is, hey, I just don't think having sex outside of marriage is wrong. Which is kind of an odd statement because we're not just talking about opinions. Okay, we're not having a conversation about what restaurant around campus is best. We can go back and forth on that and it's like, that's just your opinion. But we're not talking about opinions. Like, like me, Jordan Adams, as a person, like, I, I don't care if you have sex or not. Like, I, don't, I don't wake up and, and like try and get you to stop having sex. I'm not getting together with the other married people and like, hey, married people, let's keep this to ourselves. Let's get the singles out of here. Like, I don't care. I don't care about your sex life. Here's why we talk about it is because God does care about it. And here's why, because he cares about you and he created it a certain way and he wants you to know what that way is. So this is important for you to see is when you have a disagreement with something that the Bible teaches or what God says about sexuality, you don't have a disagreement with me. You don't, I, you don't have a disagreement with the church. You don't have disagreement with Christians. You have a disagreement with God. And, and, and here's what you need to know is he invented sex. So he kind of knows some stuff about it. He invented morality. So he's decent at talking about sexual morality. And so let's just have some self-awareness, all of us. I need this too. Let's have some self-awareness to realize who is the expert in this scenario. When you're not the expert, you don't give advice on how to do something. Okay, I can't dance. Some of you witnessed this this past weekend, okay? Devin, I appreciate it. He's like, no, yeah, yeah, all right. Thanks for having me up, Devin. But it's just true. I just can't and I typically won't, but I do at that dance because I love you and because Kaylee hunting, it's her like favorite day of the year. And so I dance for Kaylee. But here's the thing, I can't dance. So I don't teach dance lessons. All right, let's go back to 2008. Beyonce is about to release her hit single, Single Ladies. I don't roll in to Beyonce's dance practice and see the awkward gyrating that she's doing or like that hand thing that she does and be like, hey, Beyonce, I'm not feeling it. It's just kind of weird. I think you should do like a spin like jazz hands. Why? Because I'm not an expert on dancing. I don't tell Bill Gates how to make computers. I'm not the expert. Okay, you are not the expert on sexual morality. God is. And it's not an opinion discussion. It's just facts. Two plus two is four. The best context for sex is marriage. It's just true about the universe. So that is why he gives us verse 18. Look at verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. So I don't have a ton of time to unpack that, but that explains why there's a little bit of unique 
guilt or shame around this. Like I've struggled with that, with this sin in my life. There's just, I feel like I felt such shame over time that I haven't known how to overcome. The reason for that is it's, it's not somehow categorically worse than other sins. I think sometimes we act like it is. And if you've gotten that impression in Salt Company, I'm sorry for that. I didn't mean to give that impression. Um, but it is unique in the sense that it hurts the people that you're participating in that sin with and it hurts you. It's a sin against your own body. And that's why we talk about it. It's why it's all throughout the Bible is because it's a really important thing for you to understand. And so the Bible talks about it a lot. So we talk about it when it comes across in the Bible. So it says, run from sexual immorality. Flee from it. Like lock yourself down from sexual immorality. Like if there's, if there's someone trying to break into your house and you've got, you've got six doors, I don't know why you have so many doors, but you have six doors and you know that five of them are locked, but the sixth one, you're not sure if it's locked. You don't just sit around and go, oh, I just kind of hope for the best. I hope it's locked. You go and make darn sure that thing's locked because you've got to protect yourself from that person coming in. This is what I'm saying. Sexual sin wants to kill your soul. Run from it. Lock yourself down from that sin. But here's the deal. In order to run from it, you've got to know what it is. What is sexual immorality? Well, let me give you Jesus's definition. This is from Matthew 5, 27 through 28. You don't got to flip there. I'll read it to you. Matthew 5, 27 through 28. You've heard that it's said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And vice versa, right? Any woman that looks at a man has done that same thing. Okay. Here's, here's what Jesus is saying. is hey, I'm not only interested in what you do, how you act physically. I am interested in that, but I'm interested in way more than that. Because I want you body, spirit, soul, emotions, everything. Jesus wants relationship with you. And so he's interested in your purity in all of those things. It, like just thinking about behavior is amateur hour in morality. You need behavior, but you also need the right thinking, the right emotions, the right motivations. And this is what Jesus is saying is, look, I'm God. I see everything. I know everything. And so even if you don't commit adultery physically, when you think about that type of thing with a person, I see that. And I feel the weight of that. I feel the separation from you in that. And he doesn't want that separation. He wants you to have total and complete purity. Okay. Let's get specific. What is sexual immorality? It's about to get real, okay? But it's because I think we've got to clarify this. I've, I've heard from people before who have gone all the way up to the line of having sex with someone and are saying, we're good, we haven't actually had sex. And I'm saying, no, Jesus' view of morality and sexual morality is way bigger than that. So I think it's actually important to get specific. Okay, lustful thoughts. So looking at a person and thinking about having sex with them. That's sexual immorality. Dating a guy simply because of how he looks. Sexual immorality. Because you're not seeing him or her as a, a person created in the image of God worthy of dignity and respect. You're seeing that person as a trophy, as something to be used for your pleasure. Feeling up your boyfriend or your girlfriend. Making out to the point that you're sexually aroused. Porn, masturbation, oral sex. I had someone actually come up and talk to me about this. I didn't bring this up. They came up and talked to me about this and they're like, they essentially said, we're not having sex, we're just having oral sex. And I'm like, 
what? Come on. Literally the word sex is in the word. Like it's part of the definition. Okay. That is part of sexual immorality. Okay. Why? Why does God go to this extent? Why are we sitting in this public place talking about this? Why is this important? Is God just a fun hater? Is he just kind of arbitrarily like, no fun for you? No, like there's a reason why sex is awesome. It's because God made it that way. Sex is pleasurable because God designed it to be pleasurable. Okay, hear me on this. God is pro-sex. He's for it. God is pro-pleasure in sex. He wants you to get married and have an awesome sex life. But he's pro-sex in the context of marriage because that's the only context where it's truly pleasurable. Everything else causes pain. And I'll explain why that is in a second. We'll get there in a second when we talk about the purpose of sex. But let me hit a couple pushbacks to this idea that I've heard before. So I've heard people say that sex is natural or that sex is normal. All right, so let's, let's hit that first one. Sex is natural. And kind of in parentheses, the idea behind that is so you can't put boundaries on it. And, and so here's the idea is it's, it's natural for me to desire sex or a certain type of sexuality. And so it's actually wrong to put boundaries on that freedom. But here's the problem with that is there's plenty of stuff that I wanna do that's a terrible idea. There's plenty of stuff that's natural for me. This is not a good idea. I get the late night munchies after salt company every week. I just wanna eat everything in my house. So if I go home and eat the Oreos and the chips and all the stuff in the fridge, that might be natural for me. It's not a good idea. I want to buy a motorcycle and drive it as fast as I humanly can. That is not a great idea because I am accident prone. I will likely crash it. I want to never do dishes again because I hate that stuff, but my house would be filthy, right? So I do the dish. Like This is what I'm saying. There's plenty of stuff that's natural that's a bad idea. If you want to wreck your body, ruin your life and your relationships, and probably die young, do what comes to you naturally. But if you want to live a better life, do what's good. Second one, sex is normal. And kind of in parentheses, so it's not that big of a deal. Here's kind of the idea is, is sex is, is just sex. Christians are making too big of a deal out of this thing. Let's stop talking about it. This is old school. Let's move on. But look at verse 13. The Corinthians are making that same argument. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food. Okay, so that's another quote that the Corinthian church was throwing around. And here's what they were saying. It was an analogy. So they were saying, when I get hungry, I eat food. When I want to have sex, I have sex. There, it's just, it's a biological thing. It's normal. It's natural. It's fine. But listen to what Paul says in response to that. Verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. All right, so at the end there, he quotes Genesis when it's talking about marriage and then consummating your marriage with sex. And, and it, this describes what the purpose of sex is. It says that the two will become one flesh. This is what happens in, in marriage and the sex that follows is that two souls become one. 
in this sort of mystical and spiritual reality that I don't, don't totally understand, God takes two separate things and he, and he brings them together, right? So, so you, you would see that somewhat in my life. So if you went to my house and said, hey, let's divide up Jordan stuff and Jessamy stuff and let's put it in piles, you wouldn't be able to do it because it's just our stuff. If you went to our bank account and said, where's Jordan's money, Jessamy's money? It's just our money. It, there, there, and, and there's even deeper sort of emotional realities of that. Of when she leaves, I, there's something that feels off. There's something that doesn't feel whole. We're, we're joined together. That's what marriage does. And that's what sex does is it makes two souls into one. And so sex is unbelievably powerful because it's the only physical thing that can do that. That can make two souls one. And so it makes sense that God would say, hey, be careful with this thing because it's more powerful than you realize. And that, by the way, if you've had sex with someone or gotten close and had a breakup, that's why it was so brutally hard. Or it's part of the reason why. Like that feeling when you just feel hollow. Or it just, it feels like some part of you is missing, like you're missing some of your limbs. It's because you are. You were united to that person and now you're being ripped apart. That's a spiritual reality. And so that is why God puts these good restraints on it is because it's designed for that specific purpose. Now listen to this. This is wild. Okay, so immediately after talking about this, verse 17, this is what he says. But he who joined, who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. All right, that's on the screens, right? Read that and think about that. I'm gonna give you a second. That is, that is trippy. Think about that. You become, if, if you trust Jesus, you became one spirit with him. So, so this is what he's saying, is that that idea of sex, taking two souls and making it one, that is an analogy for something that happens when you become a Christian, is that you become united with Christ, and, and your spirit becomes one with his, and in some senses, there's no distinguishing between where you are and where Jesus is, because you just are Christ, and he is you. Okay, it's like, it's like welding. So, so here's what welding is, is, is you take two pieces of metal, you put a flame to it, they essentially melt, and then they kind of become one. And two pieces become inextricably linked. And you can't even tell the difference of what was one piece and what was the other piece. They're now just one thing. This is what this is saying, is when you accept Christ, your spirit, your soul becomes one soul with his, him. So that when God looks at you, he sees Jesus because in some senses you are Jesus. Do you understand how unbelievably valuable you are if that is true? Listen to this. End of verse 19 and end of verse 20. You are not your own for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Okay, you were bought at a price. When you purchase something that's really expensive, when you lose that money that you gave up to get that thing, why are you happy, not sad? The answer is because that thing was worth it to you. Here's what's true of you. You were unbelievably expensive to Jesus. It cost him his life. It cost him, you cost him his relationship with his father. You cost him heaven. 
But the whole time that he was going through that cost, he wasn't thinking about everything that he was losing. He was thinking about what he would gain in you because you mattered that much to him. You were so significant that the cost was worth it. You are worth it to him, which means that you were unbelievably valuable. And I think sometimes the church talks about this in, in ways that's sort of demeaning. And it's kind of like, oh, sex is gross. And, and if you want to pursue it, like you're gross. And, and what this is saying is the exact opposite thing. This is saying, hey, you are, you are not gross. You are beautiful. You are valuable. And Christ wants relationship with you. And so act like you're valuable. Or another way to put it is you are married to Christ. Your soul and his have come together. And so don't cheat on Jesus. That's what sexual sin is, is it's cheating on Jesus. Don't create unnecessary distance in that awesome relationship that you have with him. Don't throw around your body like it doesn't matter because it's eternal and it was bought at a price by the son of God. See yourself as, as valuable as Jesus sees you. Okay, so to, to finish here, let's, let's zoom out a little bit. So there's something going on in culture that on the whole is really amazing. Um, it's called the Me Too movement. So it, don't, don't take political connotations with that. I mean, some of the things that they're talking about, the important things that, that they're exposing. The Me Too movement is thankfully calling out sexual sin. It's calling out the results of human beings living for their own quote-unquote freedom, living for whatever they want. The result is the absolute havoc that's come across this world. And that movement is calling it out. And, and a little side note, inevitably there's people in this room who that was you. you you're, you're part of that movement. You could write me too. And there's so much I want to say, and I know none of it's enough. I, I want you to know it's not your fault. I don't care what the circumstances were. It's not your fault. You are a son or daughter of the king. And what happened to you doesn't define you. The, the evil that was committed against you is not stronger than Jesus' love for you. He loves you. He delights in you. You are not broken. You are not impure. You are not defiled because you are in Christ. And his purity is counted to you. And the second thing I want you to know is we're here to help if you want some help. You can talk to our staff about I know it might be super hard to talk about. I know you might not be ready for that. If you are ready, talk to one of our staff. We'd love to listen. And if you want, we'd love to call the police. And if it's someone in this room, I would love to personally confront them and make sure that you feel safe. Coming back, all of the things that are beautiful about the Me Too movement that it's calling for, justice, equality, accountability, love, respect, evil to be exposed for what it is and goodness to be brought into the light. Doesn't that sound familiar? If you're a Christian, it should. That's the kingdom of Jesus. That's the stuff that Jesus was talking about 2,000 years ago. 
The way that culture is calling for women to be respected right now is the way that Jesus respected women and called all of us to do the same. That is his kingdom. That's what it's like. And this is what I'm saying to you, is you can be a person who lives in that kingdom is this place can be a place that's like that, that is a place of equality, that's a place of justice, that's a place of self-sacrificial love. It's a place not of abuse and hate, but laying down your rights for the benefit of other people. We can be that because we have Christ and we have new life in him and we can access that life now. Let's think about for a second what it would be like if we actually lived out the things that Jesus taught us. Let's say specifically the things that 1 Corinthians 6 talks about. Sacrificial love for other people and sexual freedom in the restraints of self-control. One of the best ways to test out if something is moral is to think about what would happen if every single person in the world lived like that. So let's do that with the kingdom of Jesus. Let's test it out. Here's what would happen if we all lived the way that Jesus talked about. Every single person on this planet would be loved and respected. Every person would go out of their way to lay down their rights for the benefit of other people. And by the way, every single person would then have their rights picked up. Because as you are laying down your rights for someone else, someone else is laying down their rights for yours. Sexual violence and harassment would immediately stop. You would never be afraid to walk home alone. You would never be disrespected at work. Overnight, prostitution rings and sexual slavery would end. The porn industry would crumble for lack of customers. People would have better sex in committed marital relationships. There's actual studies that prove this, that older married people are the ones having the best sex. It's true. You would never go through a breakup where you felt like you were being ripped apart. You would never again know what it's like to experience the regret of using someone instead of loving them. And you would never know what it's like to have someone else use you. That sounds like a pretty awesome world. We can create that world together. Not perfectly, we can't control what other people do outside of this, but this community can bring that piece of heaven to earth. We can do it. And part of the way that we can do it is because of what Jesus has offered us. Verse nine and 10, it gives this list of everything that sucks in this world, everything that is anti-Jesus. I'll let you read that for yourself. And by the way, if you do or have done something that's on that list, it doesn't mean that you can't inherit the kingdom of God. All of the Corinthians had done those things on the list. It just means that that is the stuff that they've been saved from. And look at verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the spirit of our God. I love that. You were washed, past tense. That's, that's who you were, but you're not that anymore. If you are in Christ, you were the person that hit up the bars and slept around and had a, a list of names of people or maybe names that you didn't know of people that you had slept with. You were the people that messed around with your boyfriend or girlfriend. You were the porn addicts. You were the people who carried the shame from stuff that you did in high school like I did. You, you, you had regrets about the way that you had lived and the people that you had hurt in the wake of your sin. But that is not who you are anymore. 
because you are Christ and Christ is you. You are a new person. You have been sanctified. You know what that means? It means that you've been set apart, that you've made holy. It's past tense. It already happened. When you met Jesus, he made you holy. He made you pure regardless of your background and he washed you so now you are clean. That is your fundamental reality. If you are in Christ, you are clean. So live like you're clean. Let's pray. God, I want, I want that world to come. I want us to be a group of people that, that live the way that you said to live, that could be this, this little community that, that solves a lot of the problems that the world is pointing out, that a, a community of love and, and respect and self-control. That'd be an awesome life. It'd be a better one than the one that we tend to live. But we need your help, God. I, I, I forget that. I forget that living for you is better than living for me, and I'm sorry for that. And I'm sorry for my sin. I'm sorry for the ways that I haven't lived this out. I want to be different. I want to be a, an example of who you are to the world and, and to Salt Company. I, I want to be that. And so help me, help us to be people who, who live like you, Jesus, because you lived an awesome life. And you were the right thing for the world. And we want to be the right thing for the world. But we need your help. We can't do that on, your, on our own. And God, I want to pray specifically for the people in this room that feel regret, that feel shame, that feel guilt. I want to, I want to pray for the people that feel like <clears throat> their sins define them. Jesus, help them to know that you can set them free. That if they're in you, their sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west. That they're not defined by what they've done, but they're defined by what you've done. And you were perfect. You were pure. You were right. You were good. And so now they're good. They're right. Help them to believe in their unity with you, that, that their spirit is joined to your spirit. That's crazy, God. Help us to believe that. Help us not to sit in guilt, but to to believe that you've forgiven us and run out of guilt and run into freedom in you. Jesus, you came to give us life and give it to us abundantly. You came to give us freedom and we want to live in it. And because of that, you're worthy of our worship. Help us to sing songs to you the way that you deserve to be worshiped. We love you. Amen.